Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 16, The Accidental Ruler of It All. Who is Constantius II? Constantius II has been flitting in and out of our story for a while now. As the inheritor of the eastern third of the empire from his father, Constantius has also inherited the lion's share of ecclesiastical conflict. His territory includes Alexandria, home of that brilliant and controversial Bishop Athanasius, and also the ancestral strongholds of the Eusebii and their friends. So far, he has mostly shown up in our story by virtue of being thoroughly irritated by everything. By Athanasius's controversies, by meddling from bishops in Constans' realms, and by the utter inability of these Christians to just agree on this whole trinity thing. But Constantius is more than just a grumpy man yelling at the clouds of controversy that overshadow his empire. Often overlooked in favor of his more famous father and more inflammatory successor, Constantius's policies would set the scene for the explosion of Christological conflict that is going to mark the next years of our story. After his death, he was vilified by church and empire alike as a bloodthirsty tyrant. And yet modern scholars have rediscovered a different Constantius, far more pragmatic and reasonable than his successors made him out to be. And so, as we hack our way through the jungle of polemic and emotional half-truths, armed with only the trusty machete of historical inquiry and the trusty jungle pants of 1700 years of intellectual and emotional distance, we must ask that so often unasked question. Who really was Constantius II? Let's start with the basics. Born in 317, Constantius II was the second son of Constantine by his wife Fausta and the grandson of his namesake Constantius I. However, since his grandfather has been dead for about seven episodes now, I'm going to drop the numbers and just call the grandson, you know, the one who's still alive, Constantius, from now on. At the ripe old age of seven, Constantine decided it was time for his son to get a job and learn the finer points of statecraft, and named Constantius one of his Caesars. Being just about ready for an elementary school education, by our standards, Constantius didn't really get a lot of responsibilities at this point. But he was tutored by the finest minds in the empire, including the Christian orator Lactantius. Constantius was part of the first generation of rulers to receive both a classical secular education and a Christian education. We'll have more to say about Lactantius in a supplemental episode, but for now, just know that Constantius was given a new, cutting-edge schooling with the expectation that he would come to take on more responsibility as he aged. And he would have to take on responsibility relatively quickly. By the time he was 19, he was thrust into conflict with the Persian Empire. Persia and Rome had last fought in the time of Diocletian, and things had gone rather well for Rome back then. Rome had acquired Armenia, several provinces in Mesopotamia, and even parts of modern-day Iran, 
bringing their borders uncomfortably close to the Persian capital. Persia decided it was time to change this and launched a series of invasions on Rome's holdings. Now, Constantine was occupied with other affairs around this time. The other affairs were getting sick and dying. So he sent Constantius to the front lines to hold off this offensive. A year later, his father would die, and Constantius, at the ripe old age of 20, would be named an Augustus, after which he would return to the border with Persia to do basically exactly what he had already been doing. Whatever else Constantius was, he does not seem to have possessed the same brilliance as his father. His military success had more to do with grit and endurance than any brilliant gift for command. R.P.C. Hansen, who's the author of the classic history of this period, says that Constantius, quote, appears to have been more conscientious than brilliant, unquote. He dotted his I's and crossed his T's. He made sure his military plans were well laid, and so he suffered no massive losses to the Persian army. But he also didn't win any major victories either, as that would have required him to think outside the box. You may have noticed that in the last two episodes, Constans was the major player in ecclesiastical politics. That was mostly because Constantius was always busy fighting the Persians. Now, Constantius had the misfortune to ascend to the imperial purple at the same time that the Persian emperor Shapur II was coming into his own. Shapur II is widely regarded as one of the most militarily successful of all the Persian emperors, and expanded Persian holdings in Arabia and elsewhere throughout his empire. Constantius's uninspired solidity allowed him to hold the line against Shapur, but only just. I don't want you to get the impression from this that Constantius was a bad military commander, or even a mediocre one. In all actuality, he was really pretty good. Because he only had a third of the empire, that meant he only had a third, at most, of the Roman troops to command. So he held the line against a brilliant commander with superior numbers, which is an impressive feat. And he did this by changing his strategy from offense to defense. And he stuck with the basics. He heavily fortified a couple of key outposts on the border so that they could withstand Persian sieges. And that's exactly what they did. Shapur II would try three times, for example, to take the important city of Nisibis, which is just on the border of modern-day Turkey and Syria. Shapur II tried three times to take the city. And he tried hard. He brought siege engines, he brought massive military forces, he even dammed up the surrounding rivers to try and win by thirst. And when that didn't work, he re-diverted the river to try and flood the city. That, amazingly, didn't work either. Three times Shapur II tried, and three times he failed. That is a pretty cool track record for any emperor. Constantius may not have been as creative as his dad, but he knew that simple point defense could hold off a much more powerful adversary, and he put that into practice. And maybe that would have been enough to earn him more accolades if the Roman citizens hadn't been so used to, well, conquering. I mean, after all, their books were full of stories of Julius Caesar conquering the Gauls and expanding the empire to the north, or the great Trajan expanding the Roman Empire to the fullest extent of its rule. And then you have Constantius saying, Hey, guys, so great news! The Persians tried to take our town! 
They surrounded it for months and tried everything, but uh, we held the line. And then they just got bored and sad and went home. That was not exactly the stuff of legends. Perhaps a more brilliant commander would have found ways to break through those superior Persian lines and win some new territory. But that is not Constantius. For all his competence, he simply couldn't break the impasse, and so kept up the tense status quo with his neighbors to the east. It would be left to others to break the status quo for him. And in 350 AD, that is precisely what happened. For his brother in the west, Constans, was facing some major PR problems. He was regularly accused of being lazy and neglectful, letting his troops do all the hard work while he partied in the capital. His political opponents also spread rumors that Constans was gay. They told spiteful stories about how Constans supposedly favored his good-looking soldiers with special perks and pointed to his lack of a marriage as proof of his homosexuality. Now, as far as we can tell, neither of these were necessarily true. Based on the military records we have, Constans was actually a pretty active campaigner and was personally present at several important victories over Gaulish and Frankish tribes. As to his sexuality, we don't know for certain what his preferences were, but the fact that he had not married did not mean he was gay. In 350, Constans was 27. His father Constantine hadn't married Fausta until he was 35. The fact of the matter is that Roman rulers married for political advantage, not love. So when you got married, usually had more to do with the nature of your alliances than who you loved. Constans was by no means late in being single at 27. So if Constans wasn't doing the things he was accused of, why did he have such a PR problem? Well, because he had neglected that one essential rule of Roman emperorship. Whatever else you do... Keep your troops happy and loyal. Constance had apparently begun to play favorites and listened only to a select corps of advisors drawn from his personal bodyguard. This left the legions, unloved and envious of the rewards that his favorites were getting, deeply resentful. One of Constance's most popular generals, a fellow named Magnentius, took advantage of this. In 350, he conspired with Constans' court officials to overthrow him. While Constans was out hunting one day, Magnentius attended a lavish dinner party. Showing up in his ordinary attire, he excused himself in the middle of dinner and returned dressed in imperial purple. The dinner guests all hailed him as the new Augustus. He then took control of the city guard, shut down travel from the town, and sent a group of loyal soldiers to find Constans and his hunting party. Constantine the Great's youngest son was found, murdered, and left for dead without ceremony. Magnentius then tried to secure a place in the Imperial College. He sent several delegations to Constantius that were basically designed to test the waters. It was his way of saying, Hey, Constantius, old buddy, old pal, how's it going? I'm super looking forward to running the Empire with you. Sorry, I... Killed your brother and all, but we're past that, right? I mean, we're emperors. We have better things to do than bicker and argue about who killed who. As part of his campaign for legitimacy, Magnentius billed himself as a Christian and a defender of Christian rights. He sent several letters of support to both Athanasius and Paul of Constantinople, letters which Athanasius would not touch with a ten-foot pole. 
Magnentius was essentially trying to take over Constans' relationships with these two powerful bishops. This may have been one of the reasons why Constantius would later view Paul and Athanasius with such distrust. He may have seen them as sympathetic to his brother's murderer. Because, at the end of the day, Constantius decided that he did not have better things to do than argue about who killed who. Magnentius had dishonorably killed his brother. He had rebelled and broken his oath of loyalty. And Constantius was not about to let that stand. He had his disagreements with Constance, sure, but they were brothers, and he was not going to let a usurper, with no ties at all to the Constantinian dynasty, assume a place in the imperial college. So Constantius left a contingent of troops to hold the border with Persia and returned to the empire to deal with Magnentius. And deal with him he did. Constantius was no Constantine, but Magnentius was no Persia. Constantius's dutiful, by-the-book military tactics worked due to his troops' superior experience and to a number of defections within Magnentius's camp. It turns out that as soon as one guy decides he can overthrow the previous dynasty, a bunch of other guys say, hey, why not me too? So Magnentius had several contenders to deal with in the West. Now, scholars are divided as to whether these were truly independent bids for the throne or whether Constantius had allied with other claimants and bid them rebel to divide Magnentius's support. Either way, the effect was the same. And we know that Constantius could be pretty wily when he needed to be. When he went to war against Magnentius, Constantius drove his recruitment efforts into overtime to make sure that he could outnumber his opponent. It worked. His army was about twice the size of Magnentius's. And then on top of that, a war-prone Germanic tribe called the Almani conveniently happened to invade Magnentius's territory right as Constantius showed up. Is this a coincidence? Well, it's possible. I mean, the Almani really liked invading stuff, and maybe they saw the Civil War as a great time to score some wins. But with Constantius, it's likely there was some coordination. And Constantius would slowly but steadily gain ground against the usurper. It wasn't always easy. In fact, there was one battle in 351 that wiped out about half of Constantius's army. But Magnentius suffered similar losses, and the upper hand was always Constantius's. And in 353, Magnentius was decisively beaten, and chose to complete suicide rather than face execution. Now Constantius stood as undisputed master of the entire Roman Empire, the first time any man had enjoyed such power since his father had died just 16 years prior. What kind of man was it that now held such power? Well, a lot depends on who you ask. Some scholars, ancient and modern, depict Constantius as a brutal, cowardly man who ruled through fear and violence. Athanasius certainly depicts Constantius in this light, although given that he kept getting exiled by the guy, we shouldn't regard Athanasius's experience as typical. Constantius certainly had blood on his hands. He was not above executing his generals for incompetence or perceived rivalry, as he did with the commander of that garrison that he left behind to go beat Magnentius. We'll get more into that in a bit. And after Magnentius was defeated, Constantius appointed a few officials to conduct a purge of those still loyal to the old general. Their methods were often appallingly brutal, even by the standards of the time. One official got the nickname The Chain due to his sadistic love of torture. 
Constantius let him do his work with no real interference. We have already seen that when Constantius wanted a bishop out of a city, he would happily send troops to enforce that decree, and his troops were often quite brutal. Which means the road to Nicaea is brought to you by turning a blind eye. Love means never having to say you're sorry. But what about when you need to say, I have no idea what you're talking about? Try turning a blind eye, the hot new solution for semi-scrupulous rulers everywhere. Rule through force, but pretend to be above it. Have your cake and eat it too. Try turning a blind eye today. What you don't know can't hurt you, and what you kind of know can make ruling a lot easier. No actual blinding involved. Resentment and clandestine plots possible. Consult your doctor before making any lifestyle changes. But all of this is fairly typical for an ancient Roman emperor. The revolution of Magnentius cemented the lessons of the crisis of the 3rd century. The empire is only ever one charismatic schemer away from chaos, and so if you want to keep order, and if you want to stay in power, you need to make it very clear to charismatic schemers that the price of crossing you is death. Diocletian had learned that lesson, Constantine had learned that lesson, and now it was Constantius's turn. Of course, his treatment of political rivals horrifies us today, and rightly so, but in his world, it was simply the cost of politics. They knew of no better way to keep the empire together. And compared to his predecessors, Constantius was actually kind of mild in some ways. For example, when bishops got uppity with Constantius, he didn't necessarily have them executed. One particularly powerful example of this is Lucifer of Calaris, a bishop who really, really hated Constantius. He wrote pamphlet after pamphlet, distributed them throughout the church, describing all the reasons why Constantius sucked. Lucifer tells us that Constantius is an idolater, a murderer, worse than Jews and pagans both, and should be excommunicated and disobeyed. He's fomenting rebellion right here. And in one case, Lucifer goes on to write a letter to Constantius in which he says that he will enjoy being in heaven, and one of the things he will most enjoy about being in heaven is looking down at Constantius burning in hell. If Constantius were alive today, his response would probably be, my brother in Christ, get therapy. But since he is not alive today, but 17 centuries ago, Constantius responded with basically the 4th century equivalent of that, writing to Lucifer and telling him to stop insulting him and spreading discord. Then he exiled Lucifer, but placed no restrictions on his writing. Lucifer was free to keep slandering Constantius, he just couldn't do it as a bishop. Given his time, that verdict is kind of the gold standard of mercy. Constantius also does not seem to have been particularly interested in expanding his control over the empire. Constantine II had wanted the whole empire and attacked Constans. Constans had shown little compunction when inserting himself into church affairs in the east. And yet it was Constantius, not either of them, who wound up running the whole empire, and did so mostly by virtue of minding his own business and happy accidents. He could be assertive when needed, even brutal, but Constantius seems to have been more interested in running the territory he had than acquiring more of it. His moderation, or perhaps lack of creativity, extended to matters of religious practice as well. Laws persecuting pagans remained on the books, but Constantius didn't do much to enforce them. 
He was rather less tolerant toward Jews in the empire, limiting their economic power by forbidding Jews to hold slaves. Jewish men also could not marry Christian women, and any Christian who converted to Judaism had to surrender all their property to the state. In these respects, Constantius was more following the policies of his father than expanding the scope of anti-Judaism. Constantius also took steps to mold himself in the image of his father as the protector of Christendom. He framed Magnentius as a godless pagan, which is a pretty weird flex given that Magnentius was a practicing Christian. But as his family had proved over and over again, truth often matters less than perception. So Constantius just repeated his lines over and over again until they were seen as the truth. Constantius also had In This Sign Conquer written on his imperial regalia, those famous words supposedly given to his father at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge when a cross appeared in the sky. Just because Constantius cared about his father, though, doesn't mean he valued family above all else. Remember how in 337 the two uncles Constantine was going to elevate to the Imperial College conveniently died? Well, historians are pretty much unanimous in thinking that was Constantius's doing. He was really the only one who stood to gain from it as they would have ruled territories that came to him instead. As I said back in that episode, these kinds of dynastic purges were pretty common when a new ruler ascended to the throne. It was the best way to prevent malcontents from rallying around an alternative imperial figure. So it doesn't make Constantius especially bloody or manipulative for the time, but he was definitely no pushover. And in that respect as well, Constantius was his father's son. Constantius would have been a small boy when his older brother Crispin was murdered under mysterious circumstances. While we don't have a lot of information on the relationship between the two, we do know that Constantius had spent a fair bit of time around Crispin, and his execution probably affected Constantius pretty deeply. The message Constantine was sending was clear. Family is all well and good, but if they become a threat, you treat them like any other rival. In other words, unity was the overarching goal, as it had been with his father Constantine. If family aided that quest for unity, great. But if not, remember, unity is the goal. Of course, figuring out when family aided unity and when it was an impediment was not always so easy. And nowhere is that conflict more evident than in the final crisis in Constantius's rise to power. The problem of Gallus. Let's back up to the moment of Magnentius' rebellion. You may remember that at the time, Constantius was busy on the eastern frontier trying to fend off Persian forces. In order to defeat his brother's killer, Constantius had to leave that post. Now, luckily enough, Shapur II also had some other issues to deal with, and both rulers left the frontier around the same time. But you don't battle a charismatic, legendarily successful commander to a draw multiple times by taking risks and Constantius wasn't just going to assume the border was safe because Shapur wasn't around. He needed to appoint a new Caesar to govern this frontier in his absence. The only question was who to promote. Now, the obvious choice was a general, who had served under Constantius and already knew that field of battle well. But he didn't want to do that. After all, Constantius was fighting off a rebellion from one of his brother's generals, who had just gotten too big for his breeches, the last thing he wanted to do was create a second rebellion on the other side of the empire. That meant the only other slot to draw a promotion from was family, 
which was a bit harder to pull off given that Constantius had just killed off all of his male rivals 13 years ago. But there were still a few suitable candidates around. You may remember that I said that they left a few of their cousins alive at the time of the purge because they were just children then. And while Constantius didn't hesitate to kill family, he apparently drew the line at killing children. There were two such cousins around, Gallus and Julian. Gallus was the older of the two, at about 25 years old. His actual name was Constantius Gallus, which played on his imperial family's love of confusingly similar names for everybody. Constantius apparently decided this was good enough. He married Gallus to his sister, who was named, what else, Constantina, and promoted him to Caesar, then left him in charge of the frontier. This would prove to be a mistake. As you might imagine, seeing your mother, father, and older brothers murdered in imperial intrigues does not really do wonders for your mental health. Neither does being promoted to emperor by the guy who orchestrated the whole plot. To really put a cherry on top of the whole thing, Gallus uncovered and foiled an assassination plot against himself early in his reign. This fueled a tragic descent into paranoia and despotism. It wasn't long before Gallus, drunk with his newfound authority, started wandering around the streets of eastern cities, excommunicating and exterminating all rivals. And I'm told, uh, this, this is a first, wow, we actually have some audio of Gallus from the time. Uh, let's play that now. Okay, you got me. That's Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars Revenge of the Sith. And of course, Gallus was a Roman emperor, not a galactic emperor. But the people in the streets might not have noticed much difference. Gallus began to run his portion of the empire like a police state. Spies were everywhere, and even a hint of a whiff of displeasure with Gallus was enough to get you executed as a traitor. Sometimes there didn't even have to be a charge at all. Due to a bad harvest and some military campaigns taking up food, it came to pass that there was a grain shortage early in Gallus's rule. Now Gallus tried to solve the supply shortage by legislating the price of grain. You remember that Diocletian tried and failed at this same strategy, and it worked about as well for Gallus. When the senators of Antioch rolled their eyes at his ham-fisted price controls, Gallus ordered every single one of them executed. Now, he was stopped by the timely intervention of a traveling imperial official, but being one temper tantrum away from summary execution doesn't really do wonders for anybody's morale. Gallus's popularity plummeted. Seeing no other option, he took full responsibility for his failures and promised to do better by his people in the future. I'm just kidding. What Gallus actually did is found another official to be the fall guy, held him in front of an angry mob, blamed him for the famine, and then watched as the mob tore the poor man to pieces and went rampaging through the city. Several important churches and buildings were destroyed in that rampage. As you can imagine, Constantius was not pleased to learn of what Gallus had been up to. Of course, Constantius could look the other way, but summary execution of important political officials, when it hadn't been signed off by Constantius, was a bit too far. He didn't have the means to remove his cousin just yet, as he was still tied up with his campaigns against Magnentius. But he immediately began removing key officials from Gallus's circle. 
Without good counsel, Gallus was far more likely to fall into the Emperor's trap when the time came. And that is exactly what happened. Constantius planted a rumor that he was about to summon Gallus and declare him an Augustus, give him equal rank in ruling the Empire. Constantius then summoned Gallus to appear before him. As Gallus journeyed westward, his support was steadily stripped away. Troops were removed from his route, officials loyal to Constantius joined his traveling party, and every possible ally was removed from Gallus's orbit. Then, by the time Gallus had reached modern-day Slovenia, there was no more need for subterfuge. He was arrested and taken to the same prison where Crispin had been executed. He was summarily tried, condemned, and beheaded. This grisly story illustrates so much about Constantius's temperament. He was a capable but not brilliant manager who tried to make the best of his limited resources and sometimes made mistakes. But he was also a fearsome opponent to cross with a talent for manipulation that often exceeded his less subtle peers. Constantius also had a temper and a tendency to stew on grudges. If Constantius condemned you to death, he wasn't going to relent 15 minutes later once his temper had cooled down. When Constantius gave the death order, it was time to start running. And, of course, Constantius desired unity within his fractured and rebellious Roman Empire, much as his father had before him. How would an emperor with that kind of desire and that kind of skill and manipulation shape up against an increasingly polarized and fractitious church? Well, that is the next question we must answer with our new imperial companion to keep us company along the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Alter Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.